This afternoon, the first lecture is about don't fix the price of gold. In other words, we are suggesting a blueprint how to return to the gold standard. Most other blueprints would start with the problem of fixing the price of gold. Now, the word fixing is an anathema to me because this has nothing to do with the idea of a gold standard, a fixed price of gold. It's just the other way around. Gold is money, gold is the standard value, and it is other instruments such as credit instruments created and issued by banks which if one if they want to compete with gold they will have to fix their price in terms of gold in particular i'm very very critical of milton friedman the late uh, high priest of uh, monetarism uh, and uh, I am perhaps very strong on him with my criticism because he should know better than saying that a gold standard is contrary to the idea of the free market this is how he argues because it fixes the price of gold now, as I say, Milton Friedman should have known better that this is not the case. There was the mint first, central banks came afterwards, and they wanted to compete with gold, so they had to say that they are issuing credit instruments such as bank notes and bank deposits, and they fix the value or the price of these instruments in terms of gold. So it's just the other way around and suggested by Milton Friedman. And of course he had a whole school built up around him, the monetarist school, and they misrepresented the relationship between the mint and the central bank. There is no price-fixing scheme involved in the gold standard. The uh, institutions, the Mint on the one hand and the Central Bank on the other, are coming from opposite ends, but the Mint is the original. The constitutional money is the money produced by the Mint. What the bank issues, for example, take a bank note, is not money in the sense of Juno Moneta, Juno the vigilant goddess of money, Juno the goddess of constitutional money. What the bank issues is just a promise 
It's a promise to pay constitutional money on demand to whoever submits that instrument to the bank. Only full-bodied coins, gold and silver coins, are money. And the bank instruments are just promises. So there is no price fixing involved. A gold standard can exist without any bank notes being put into circulation. So the charge of price fixing was simply planted and planted maliciously by Milton Friedman in order to denigrate and discredit the gold standard. His suggestion that the central bank is the creator of money and the mint is merely an embellishment wholly unnecessary to boot is a shameless lie. Friedman is celebrated as the liberator, in quotation mark, of the dollar by monetarists who consider it a triumph to have set the dollar free from its golden shackles. In fact, however, Friedman is the assassin of the dollar and will be remembered as such. Because he had this to build up this mythology that the government is the creator of money. And people are incompetent. People, uh, it's just for their entertainment that we have coins. Basically, it's an instrument which the government creates and issues. Which is, of course, if you think about it, you realize is a shameless lie because it loses its value. In less than a hundred years, the Federal Reserve notes lost 99% of their value and they stand in grave danger that they will lose the remainder in the next few years. So before its 100th centenary, the Federal Reserve notes will be worthless scrap of paper. <clears throat> so the question of coercion comes up. The big difference between gold money which is created by the mint, the constitutional money, and the credit money created by the banks is a matter of coercion. The gold coins issued, uh, rather created by the people who surrender gold to the mint, and the mint gives them in exchange one to one uh, gold coins, is absolutely without coercion. People do that voluntarily. If they don't, it simply means there will be less money in circulation, but that's the wish of the people. However, when it comes to bank-issued or central bank-issued money, there is coercion 
involved. Without legal tender legislation, the Federal Reserve notes just would not circulate. People would not accept paper, irredeemable paper, paper promises which are not redeemable in anything except themselves. People who surrender real goods and real services would, would not accept them and the whole system would collapse. The reason it doesn't or hasn't yet collapsed is because there is this implicit coercion involved. The whole uh, coercive force of the government, including police and uh, uh, soldiers and uh, courts and everything else, stands behind that people must accept these in full payment or else. Now, of course, it, we know it won't work forever, but it works for a time. And as I say, Friedman should have known better. So the question is, how can you have a monetary system without coercion? The answer is, well, constitutional money does work. It's, uh, the instrument is the mint, and people take the initiative, and they are the creators of money, and if they find that there's too much money in circulation, uh, they will uh, melt down the coins and use them in jewelry making or export them or whatever they do. But if there's too much money, in circulation, meaning too much constitutional money, then it means that its value is less. So its gold may be more valuable abroad, or it means in particular that the price of jewelry is cheaper because the raw material gold for jewelry making is cheaper. So in other words, there is a symbiosis. The, the will of the people will prevail. If there is too little money, people will take gold to the mint and convert it into money. If there is too much money, people can take the coins, melt them down, and use the gold for other purposes. And that's how it has been for thousands of years. So legal tender is the way for the government to apply this coercion. And it's interesting to mention that originally the term legal tender didn't mean coercion. This was a later twist, a later distortion of the meaning of perfectly honest and good terms such as legal tender. Originally legal tender meant one of two things. One was that a full-bodied gold coin uh, in use suffered wear and tear, so its weight fell below the full-bodied weight. Now if every time this happens uh, the 
advantage of paying by tail, that's the technical expression. You, you can use gold coins in payments either by tail or by weight. Tail is counting them out and uh, multiplying the uh, standard coin, the value of the standard coin with the number you have. But if the coins are all worn, then the party who is accepting them may take exception and say, look, you are paying me with well-worn coins. I won't take it. I take it only by weight and then they use the scale. But that's a big disadvantage, of course, and if every time the slightest loss of weight you would have to go from paying by tail to paying by weight, it would be cumbersome. So the government uh, whose duty it is to provide coinage for the nation, the same as providing uh, public roads. The government introduced legal tender legislation which simply meant that up to a certain limit underweight coins should be acceptable in trade by tail. You don't have to go weighing just because it's slightly worn. And when it, the weight falls below that legal tender uh, limit, then the government will take back the coin at full value and recoin them at government expenses. In other words, put the missing value back and reissue them as full-bodied coins. And that's just like the government repairing a road. Just the same thing. And that's, by the way, one reason in the morning I referred to it, why we cannot just say, oh, we trust private mints to make these coins. Well, they haven't got the uh, W uh, any way to make up that they have to pay for wear and tear. Somebody has to. And that is what the government should do and cover the expenses by taxes. So that's one meaning of legal tender. It refers to uh, the uh, government's obligation to make up the loss due to wear and tear. So you see, it gives you a right. It's not a coercion. It's, it's not an obligation on you. It's an obligation on the government. It gives you the right to demand a full-bodied uh, gold coin in exchange for a worn one. Uh, by the way, this uh, uh, this expense with modern technology could be reduced because I am sure if we had a gold standard today then these gold coins would be put in, in plastic holders which would completely eliminate the problem of wear and tear. You, you could remove the coin from the plastic holder to check if, if it's all right, it's uh, a perfect specimen and weigh it and even test it with acids, acids. but 
as far as wear and tear is concerned, that could be eliminated with, with modern methods. But that was a problem originally, as we can understand. So there it is. That's one meaning of the word legal tender. But there was another one as well. And this was due to the use of the so-called subsidiary coinage. So just like copper, nickel, and the uh, subsidiary silver coins, the dime and quarter and half dollar, these were in circulation. Uh, the problem arose that uh, they could easily disappear from circulation because they originally there uh, they were full-bodied, at least the silver subsidiary coinage, and as, as long as they were full-bodied, they uh, could easily disappear from circulation if people, uh, especially under bimetals, when one uh, monetary metal could be more valuable than the other. And this could uh, result in great inconvenience in the market where people wanted to make small purchases and there just wasn't enough uh, subsidiary coinage. So then they, the government, and the, the Secretary of the Treasury decided to issue less than full-bodied silver coins as subsidiary coins uh, which would not disappear from circulation because they were not full-bodied uh, coins. Uh, nobody would uh, collect them for their metal value. Uh, numismatics is another story, but uh, as far as their, their metal, metallic value was concerned, they were not hoarded. So uh, the uh, government issued them, but it felt obliged to introduce a limit. In other words, you as a receiver of payments in debt or whatever, were not obliged to accept unlimited amount of subsidiary coins because this would have been unfair to force you to get less monetary value than you were entitled to. So there was a limit set. Now, I don't know exactly what these limits were, but say copper was limited to one dollar. In other words, 100 coppers you, could, you had to accept, but not more than 100. If anybody offered you, uh, owed you two dollars and you offered the uh, you were offered 200 coppers, you could say, no, I take the 100 because I'm obliged to, but you give me the rest in silver or whatever. And the nickel was perhaps limited to $5. You had to accept $5 uh, in nickels, but not more than $5. So again, here we have legal tender which protects your rights. It's not a coercion. You were not coerced, but you were helped that, okay, you have subsidiary coinage and you have a certain uh, security that these will be acceptable in payment. And it was a much later 
development that the value of paper money had to be protected and then the word came very handy legal tender sure now originally legal tender was limited to say one dollar or five dollars now it's unlimited you are obliged to accept an unlimited amount of paper money intrinsically worth practically zero and the government can force you to take whatever losses that involves. And we know that there are such losses involved. Now, what is happening is actually much worse than just that legal tender uh, charade, because there is another charade a check kiting business between the Treasury and the Central Bank, in that case the Federal Reserve. Because what is happening is that both institutes have to, have, they have to back their instruments with, they have a balance sheet like every other business and their liability has to be covered by assets. So the question is, what are the assets which the Federal Reserve has against issuing uh, the Federal Reserve notes? And the answer is, well, Treasury paper. The U.S. Treasury issues uh, bonds, notes, bills, and the uh, Federal Reserve buys them. and issues paper money which it can spend and what are the what are the notes bonds and bills of the treasury payable in they're payable in federal reserve notes so if you think of it you will find this check kiting business the U.S. Treasury issues instruments which are irredeemable on the face of it because they are not redeemable in any concrete value. They are just redeemable in terms of another promise which the Federal Reserve makes. But what is that promise? Federal Reserve note is payable in itself. It's a final means of payment. So check kiting is going on, and you know this is illegal, except when the U.S. government and the Federal Reserve uh, is engaging in this. So that's, I think, a, a, a very serious matter, and again, it should be taught in schools. Check, I mean, if you ask people what is check kiting, they may give you some kind of an answer, but very probably uh, they would be abhorred if you suggested to them that this is exactly what the government does, this is how the uh, Federal Reserve note come to be accepted in circulation. There's this check kiting going on. 
So again, we are back at the problem of education. We don't have a proper educational system because the uh, uh, our, our young people are not taught about the uh, double standard which the government enforces. Uh, if, if private individuals who are engaged in the same kind of uh, trade as the Federal Reserve and Treasury is involved, they would end up in jail in no time at all. <clears throat> so here we go, the idea of fixing the gold price is not going to work. And it would also upset social peace. Our social peace depends on an agreement between creditors and debtors. They should both be protected within their rights and the government should have laws and rules which would give no reason to either group to be dissatisfied with the behavior of the other. And that's exactly what creates the problem if you try to fix the gold price. If you try to, well, first of all, we don't even know if it's possible to find an equilibrium price. A lot of people uh, who believe in the quantity theory or other uh, theories uh, might say, yes, of course, there is an equilibrium price of gold. If it's another question that it may change, and if it changes too fast, that's too bad. It means gold is not the right medium. But apart from that, even if you assume that there is an equilibrium price for gold, the question is how to determine it. And who has the power or the right to enforce? Suppose somebody says it's so many dollars or it will be the gold price on such and such a day. And then you fix it. The problem is that if you overshoot, if you fix the gold price, too high, you favor the creditors. On the other hand, if you undershoot and you fix the gold price uh, too low, even just a little low, you are favoring the uh, debtors, which would give rise to endless bickering and charges and countercharges. So that's not the way to go to find and so-called equilibrium price, fix it, and then declare that gold is money at such and such a rate. So the word fixing is just not a proper word in this context. What we are suggesting that the gold standard should be introduced is not even demanding the abolishing of the Federal Reserve, as so many people would like to do. Because we are so 
convinced that the Federal Reserve will die a natural death. It's sufficient to provide proper competition for the Federal Reserve notes, and as long as people find it to their advantage to stay or stick with the Federal Reserve notes, let them do it. And those who want to take advantage of gold, they have a choice. They are not forced. So the only reform which you want to introduce is to abolish the legal tender coercion. The Federal Reserve can no longer insist that whatever it issues will serve money because people have the choice, they can go to the mint and they can convert their gold into the coin of the realm and there will be two kinds of money in circulation. One is the constitutional money and the other is the traditional, I shouldn't say traditional, the Federal Reserve notes of the past 70-80 years, which the Federal Reserve then would be under obligation to take responsibility for. If they can live with a an increasing gold price, that's fine. If they try to stabilize the value of Federal Reserve notes, that's fine too. Let them do something, not just issue them and take no more responsibility for the Federal Reserve notes. So that would be a fair system. Let the people decide. Is there any room for Federal Reserve notes? But there should not be a fixed exchange rate between the two, and it would be absolutely the responsibility of the Federal Reserve banks to uh, keep them in circulation. They could not force the circulation of the Federal Reserve notes. So this is the uh, reform which we are suggesting and I think if you uh, um, if you want to be you want to find an optimal system that's the one you, that you would after all and a lot of people, including foreign governments, which uh, put their faith into the dollar, would be hurt if from one day to the other you would say, we take no more responsibility, we won't give you any value for it. The uh, paper dollar is going to stay in circulation and the constitutional gold dollars or silver dollars will stay in circulation and the market will decide what the exchange rate should be between the two. Now this is more or less the content of my latest uh, contribution to the internet. Uh, it's a paper opening them into gold and silver and also another one to which I gave the title Uncle Sam crying uncle, uncle. <laughs> <laughs> and we make 
make that paper available to you tomorrow. Okay. So, any questions at this stage? And then I go on to the proper topic of the hour. Don't fix the price of gold, which is uh, also going to be made available to you. That's uh, uh, lecture two of the series. Larry, you have a question? Yes. Uh, Dr. Getty, this morning you, you um, mentioned uh, a precedent. A what? A precedent for uh, the reinstituting of the mint at, at one point in, back in time. And I'm not sure what, uh, what you were referring to. What was the word? Uh, he said that uh, he thought that you had referred to a uh, situation where uh, they had uh, a precedent, where they had uh, reinstituted the mint at a point in time. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, the mint was closed to gold and silver, first to silver and then to gold, and we are talking about the U.S. Mint. hundred years apart, it was close to silver in the 18, late 1800s, close to gold in the late 1900s. But the government doesn't admit that they were closed, because they confuse the issue. Now, I don't know if this is your question, but the government pretends that the job of the mint is to give you subsidiary coinage but it's just a coincidence that if you already have a mint which is issuing constitutional money then it will ins uh, issue subsidiary coins to help trade to facilitate trade in small amounts just a coincidence could have been a completely different institution but since the facilities were basically the same, the presses and the essay office and what have you, so let the same institute take care of both. And the government maliciously misused this coincidence to pretend that the mint has never been closed. But we use the word closing the mint to gold and silver in a very special technical sense. Really? I think you were asking about a precedent, and, and what Professor was talking about, the precedent of shutting off the U.S. bank, the central bank. There was a central bank called the National Bank of the U.S., and President uh, Jackson. Jackson said no, he didn't renew it. So there was no U.S. central bank until 1913. And so there's a precedent for shutting down the central bank that's again. Right. Okay. I think that's what yeah, that's, that's correct, I think. Yeah. Well, that's that. Was, got yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Incidentally, that's a very interesting thing. That 1913 is a very memorable year for another reason. <laughs> Taxes. The income tax, and again the same story. The income tax was introduced for the second time. Because there was an earlier instance when the federal government wanted to, and at that time it went all the way to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court decided that federal income tax was unconstitutional. 
So then for a couple of decades, I, I don't have the dates in mind, but uh, you know, they lay low and then they came back at the same time when they came back for the second time with the central bank issue, they came back with the income tax issue and they could force both measures through Congress. Just in time, ready for World War I to finance that big, big bloodletting all over the world. And, uh, you know, people, uh, including Henry Ford and other influential people, predicted that the war would like a couple of months because then the government would run out of money <laughs> and couldn't finance it anymore. And that's true not only in England and France, but in Germany and all the other countries. You know, what naivety it was. Because all these countries were ready. They had all the facilities to inflate the credit and pay for it. And politically, in Europe, they had socialist parties which were, on the face of it, opposed to the war. But just as long as they never asked for issuing credit to finance mobilization. When the government asked for it, all the socialist uh, representatives voted for it. You know, which is, which is a, a, a real shame because the, theoretically there was a possibility of it. So I just mentioned this by the way, that the income tax and the Federal Reserve are two bastard sons of, of unlimited government power, which is again contrary to the U.S. Constitution. By the way, I don't know too much about that, but I've read somewhere that in order to, to uh, validate the income tax and perhaps also the Federal Reserve, there had to be a ratification by individual states. And they didn't do it. And they didn't it do not, it. it they done. went only so yeah. far, and then it got bogged down because the extra votes were, were more missing. difficult. They were there. So they just said, okay, yeah. we have enough votes. This is, this is extraordinary. This is the Constitution. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, this is, the, and they, they have procedures in place, things that we're supposed to do. They weren't done, so they just did it anyway. <laughs> and in fact, when uh, uh, Professor Feckaday brought up that thing about how they, uh, they, they, they first tried to institute the income tax and went all the way to the Supreme Court and was ruled uh, unconstitutional. You know, 20 years later, they put it through. It occurred to me when you said that, I, this is what they must mean when they speak of the Constitution as a living document. Living document. You know, that it's not set. You know, <laughs> that it's not set. It's living. It could be green one year and purple the next. <laughs> and so it's like life itself is in a state of transition. <laughs> no, this story. Send me a paper in the next. Oh, paper in the next. Just it's just a paper. That's, that's, and that's what we come to. All right. Now, so we are ready to start the course proper. We, basically, because we are talking about the real bills doctrine 
and its relevance to modern conditions. So I keep that in mind, that this is very important. We are not just trying to dust off an old uh, theoretician and trying to make propaganda and, and so on, but we are really applying some solid ideas to modern condition. So here it is, the banks as we stand here early on in the 21st century, I think the banks all over the world, not just in the United States, not just in Europe, in Asia and elsewhere, but even in Switzerland, which uh, were for many years thought of as the paragon of banking, you know, if you want good banking, you go to Switzerland. They have sold out to power interest. It could be uh, could be uh, uh, power groups, could be government, but they are not representing all the interests of the people. So. We might say banks must go. Banks in the form as we have known, known them during the 20th century are not, they don't deserve the trust which people have put in them. And the latest crisis is just another proof and I don't have to go into the details. So, the question arises, well, can we live without banks? Ideally, we may say, yes, it's a good idea. We don't trust them and we don't have to because we can live without them. But really, the question is, can we live without banks? And the answer is, yes, we can. And we just have to go back to the original idea of <coughs> Adam Smith who said that the papers which traders use among each other when they are producing consumer goods for consumption, they can acquire a monetary quality, a very limited but still monetary quality because just take the example, the simplest example is producing bread for consumption. Bread is a staple food, perhaps not in the United States, but in Europe and Asia and Africa, certainly to this day a very important staple food, bread. And we might even say for uh, purposes of uh, simplification, that the bread is going through say four stages from the wheat farmer to the miller uh, who is milling the wheat into flour and then to the baker and then to the consumer 
So the baker who is in direct touch with the consumer, consumers buy the bread from the baker, he takes delivery of flour from the miller. He's not paying cash for the flour, he just gives the, the, uh, the miller will bill the baker for the flour and that bill will be payable in uh, a reasonable amount of time and that paper which bill which the baker is issuing to the miller will also be acceptable to the farmer who delivers the grain to the miller. So when the final bread is sold to the consumer, his money will liquidate all these credit instruments and nobody owes anyone else after that cycle is complete. And lo and behold, no banks was involved. Now, what is true for bread is also true for uh, producing... Uh, okay, but not only agricultural goods, but also industrial goods such as cars or uh, or medicine what have you because in every case you will find that there are these stages of production and the let's call them maturing goods the good is maturing the consumer goods it's not yet ready for consumption goes from one stage to the next getting closer and closer to the final consumer as the good matures there is there are all kinds of payments now if you insist that gold has to be used as the means of payment in every case, if there were five stages, you would have to invade the pool of circulating gold coins five times to finance the movement of this maturing good from one stage to the next. And this is perfectly wasteful and assumes a much bigger pool of circulating gold coins. In effect, the beauty of the thing is that the only gold coin paid by the final, the ultimate consumer, will liquidate all these claims at the time when the consumer buys the good. So the pool of circulating gold coins has to be invaded only once instead of five times. Now, if you remember, that with the development of division of labor which gets more and more refined it is possible that not five but fifteen traders are involved in producing some one particular good that means f invading the pool 
of circulating gold coins 15 times. And even that is not the limit, because if you think that in the age of computers, computers can make all these processes even more productive, then you might find that 50 tradesmen are involved in producing the same good. And therefore, if you want to finance the movement of that good on the basis of so-called 100% gold standard, then you would have to invade the pool of circulating gold coins 50 times. It's completely wasteful. So what happens is that these traders accept the bill in payment and they put the limit on the maturity not more than 91 days 13 weeks three months one quarter of the year and by the way that's not arbitrary either because one quarter of the year coincides with the length of the seasons of the year and it stands to reason that a lot of merchandise consumer goods are seasonal in character certainly clothing but also food and you will find many others also that with the change of seasons the demand supply and demand will change as well but we are not going into that we just say that this is a very natural thing but the big point which I'm trying to make is that no bank is involved even if 50 times uh, 50 stages of the production are involved you can do it without the banks the bill the real bill is such a powerful instrument it was in England at the time of Adam Smith it was in the early uh, days of the Renaissance in Italy and by the way that's the place where the bill was invented in Florence in these Italian city-states Florence uh, Florence Venice Genoa and so on and they could even finance the trade overseas because if you attached in, in um, insurance documents to the bill then they would be acceptable in local payments too uh, and the uh, cargo was still at sea exposed to weather pirates all what you have but there was insurance it was cash as good as cash so professor um, just for my own personal clarification here the real bills doctrine is in essence how commerce was carried on before the uh, uh, creation of credit-based capital markets under government capitalist systems that we have is that true? I, I wouldn't say before credit okay. based because that's credit. Yeah, yeah, but before government issued central banking credit. Oh, long, many centuries so, before. So this is the way it bank. always was until capitalism. This is the basis of commerce then, until quote unquote modern capital credit based markets. Came yeah, along. yeah. There were there were bank banking 
like institutions, okay. but their job was more like trading in foreign exchange. Okay, sure. You know, not financing production. Okay. okay. You see, sure. but with with the tremendous success of the real bills, the banks, of course, found that this was extremely profitable, especially when it came to exotic uh, goods such as spices, uh, silk, satin, silk from China. Uh, uh, one of the uh, one of the uh, metals next right next to gold and silver which is mentioned in the bible most often what's the name uh, uh, it, it, it was used in the middle ages for making paints and color uh, you know um, uh, coloring stuff and so on very very uh, can't can't remember is this, a, is this a metal it starts with an a a metal which can be used in making antimony. paints. Hmm? Antimony. Antimony. Antimony is an abstract term meaning uh, uh, antinomy, a counterstatement. Antimony. Ah, well, anyhow, anyhow, and that's the metal was very, very important in the Middle Ages because they didn't uh, have the knowledge of chemistry to make paints for coloring stuff or houses or what have you. Very lucrative business, and they came also from the Levant and overseas. So big trade in that. So spices, silk, antimony. Hmm? Tea, coffee came later, but they were also very important. You see, this trade was the backbone. And since they involved long routes, for instance, if you think the Silk Route that's went throughout Asia, crossing oh, any number of countries, went, uh, you know, picked up in China and came all the way to Western Europe. So, uh, all this trade was not financed by banking, it was financed by bills. Assuming insurance, of course, because that was dangerous. In some cases, this the great dangers were involved when they uh, crossed certain countries where the security, safety of the rules was not uh, taken for granted. And banks came in later, and first private banks and central banks much later. And uh, we are talking about this, that it's perfectly feasible that you have uh, productive economy, financing of production 
does not necessarily depend on the banks. And I think we are going in that direction. Our banks are losing more and more of their credibility. And this recent crisis, I just mentioned one thing about that, is not even just about whether people trust the banks. More importantly, does one bank trust another? Because if that is missing, then the banking system is going to go to pieces. It's just worthless. Because what makes the thing go is that one bank accepts at least an overnight draft on another without question. And now we were close to the point that even an overdraft overnight draft of one bank on another was questioned. Does this bank try to pass on some losses to me with that overnight draft? Incredible. But that's how far we went. Now perhaps we backed off from the, uh, from the brink. But the question has been asked and the question is still there and it could come up next time. So there it is, the banks are not absolutely necessary, however they are, the function which they perform is a valid one and therefore it might be just a good idea to think about how they could be brought back. And this we are going to discuss in the next section, which is about uh, credit unions. But as I say, it's not an absolute necessity to have banks. All right. Here's a quotation from John Quincy Adams, date 1829. He said, All the perplexities, confusion, and distress in America arise not from the defects in the Constitution or Confederation, not from want of honor or virtue, so much as from downright ignorance of the nature of coin, credit, and circulation. Ignorance. So in other words, the education is missing. People should understand the nature of coins, and I refer to full-bodied uh, coinage and subsidiary coinage, a very important difference. Credit and the circulation, whether it's spontaneous or due to coercion. So I add one word, that is three C's, John Quincy Adam. Coin, credit, circulation. I add the fourth C, which is clearing. And what I have in mind is what we already discussed, these stages of production, the same final 
consumer good, but has to go through successive stages of production. Then the problem of clearing arises between adjacent stages. And clearing is a source of credit because you see this is something very special. If you take say flour, which is intermediate form of bread, not yet ready for direct consumption. These two tradesmen, the miller and the baker, they know the product, they know each other, they know how it arises, <coughs> and it's a very special market for flour. Bread has a wide market, wide open, because everybody, practically everybody consumes bread. But flour is more, more limited. So when the maturing product goes through these stages, then it's a limited market, but this is very important. You don't need gold to finance that trade because the clearing process does create the credit instruments which is perfectly satisfactory to financing it. So this is an important word for us to uh, take the word is clearing and just add it to Adam's three C's, we have four C's, coin, credit, circulation and uh, clearing. When it comes to credit there are two sources of credit and one is clearing the concept we've just discussed. And there is another which is saving. So credit could arise in two forms, short-term and long-term credit. The, the distinction between the two is absolutely important. And short-term credit arises out of clearing. Long-term credit cannot be finance the same way as short-term credit, you have to assume the existence of savings to have that. Now we have basically uh, laid out the foundation and ready to announce the real bills doctrine. Oh yeah, uh, how, how am I with time? Is this 2.30? Okay, okay, so I'm, I'm alright, because that <laughs> that is important now. We are going to announce the real bills doctrine. It's not obsolete as 
a lot of people will tell you. It's not at all obsolete, it's very modern and very important because it's still the same process how we are producing consumer goods and uh, uh, the, the, the demand for consumer goods has to be elastic it changes with the seasons, it also changes with the capriciousness of the nature of the consumer. The consumer is the boss. The consumer could change his or her taste overnight and then the traders just have to follow. They cannot dictate. It's the consumer who does. So in order to have an elastic monetary system, uh, you are assuming uh, the circulation of real bills which finance the maturing consumer goods as they move closer and closer to the consumer. The market economy is equipped with a natural built-in clearing system that will generate all the credit which is necessary to move the goods from producers to the retail outlet and finally to the consumer. Provided there is a condition, provided that the good itself is moving fast enough. And when I say fast enough it means does the consumer demand it urgently enough? Because if the co consumer demand is not that urgent, then the good is not moving fast enough and the financing of this move, particular movement uh, will not be possible through bill circulation. So keep it in mind there are exceptions. This is a condition. The underlying maturing consumer good has to move fast enough to the ultimate consumer. If it does, then the real bills are the instrument which will find, uh, which will Mm, uh, finance that movement. Now, what is a real bill? A real bill is a piece of document which is drawn on the, let's call the last person in this chain, the retailer. Okay, there are these producers and then there's the wholesaler, there's the retailer and after that is the consumer and the good is removed from the market and consumed and finished, okay? But the last two, okay. So the wholesaler delivers the good, the consumer good to the retailer and he doesn't demand cash for it. He just bills the retailer and on the bill he will mention the quantity and quality of the good which is covered by that particular shipment and the value which is payable not instantly but in say 91 days time, not more than 90, could be uh, shorter but not more than 91 days, okay? If it comes from overseas <coughs> well, that's a different thing. Let's not bring it in. But uh, 
the good has been delivered and the uh, retail merchant has been built, built and he has to accept that bill. So the retailer will sign on the face of the bill, accept it with his signature and date. Okay, the bill has been accepted. Then there are these two signatures on the bill already, the wholesaler and the retailer. And the wholesaler has his own suppliers of goods, or semi-finished goods, and he will be able to assign that bill in payment for the semi-finished finished or semi-finished good to his own suppliers. He just endorses the bill on the back and then the supplier of finished or semi-finished good will be able to use it again in the same way through endorsing the bill on the back you might have lots of signatures and the bill circulates in this way we say we we this way we say that the clearing system works the real bill circulates and finances the movement of the consumer good to the ultimate consumer When the 91 days up, then whoever is in possession of this bill can go to the uh, to the uh, retailer and demand payment because he promised to pay by that date, and he should have the coin of the consumer because by that time the underlying good has been sold. But more often than that what happens is that there is a so-called discount house <coughs> and the discount house makes it its business to buy up these maturing bills and therefore those who want cash they can go to the discount house and it's called a discount house because the <coughs> the uh, uh, fellow who runs the discount house is buying these bills with a discount because the face value of the bill will be discounted by the number of days which remain to maturity and there's a discount rate which could be higher or lower and uh, the product of the number of days remaining to maturity and the discount rate will uh, give you the amount which will be taken out of the face value and the difference is paid. So this is a very advantageous arrangement because the, those Traders who need cash, they can just turn around and get cash uh, uh, on very short order. They just have to go to the discount house and discount their bill. And that finishes the, uh, <laughs> the ephemeral light, the life 
of the bill. The bill lives for 90 days at most, and then it dies, but it did a great service in financing the trade. Really? One question I, I want to be sure I'm clear. As the various trades endorse the bill along, it's always the same value they endorse, or do they discount it? Or is it only discounted at the discount house? So let's say the, the baker says it's 100 ounces. Will it stay at 100 ounces through all these different hands? Um, yeah, the question is justified. There, the discount will be taken into account by these two traders because because uh, some time might have elapsed already and some time might still be outstanding so they make adjustment and that adjustment uh, will will take the discount into into account. So it's the same discount rate no matter who does No, no, the discount rate may change, yes, but at every time the bill changes hands, it's the discount rate on that day which will apply and that will be taken into account. Okay? <laughs> Professor, yeah. it seems to change the balance of risk somewhat though, because Today, if I want to accelerate payment in 30 days rather than 90 days, the onus becomes that of, in this example, the retailer to pay me, in which case they have to borrow money from the bank and incur interest. Under this method, I have to discount the bill, in which case I have to take a lesser margin on my product because I want to get paid within 30 days rather than 90 days. So there is a shift here in the uh, economic rent. I'm not sure because if it's 30 days, you get your advantage by paying for fewer days. Well, are you suggesting that the discount rate for a 30-day credit will be different from the discount for a 90-day credit? And I'm talking about the rate now, not the number of days. It's clear that the difference in the number of days will make one more expensive than the other. If you use the credit for a longer period, you have to pay more. But I don't think there will be a difference in the discount rate itself. I'm, I'm contrasting the bill system to today's system. Today's bill system and? And today's current banking system. Uh, well, that's entirely different. Today, uh, I might say the banks have monopolized this type of credit. They stamped it out of existence. This credit which is based on clearing, the banks have monopolized. And therefore there is no competition anymore. And therefore the two different ways of financing are not competing with one another. It's just bank financing period. Either you finance it out of your own resources or you go to the bank. It's monopolized, that's I would say. Well it is monopolized. I'm just I'm just comparing and contrasting that 
in today's existing system where I force the retailer to pay in 30 days. He has to borrow money from the bank and he incurs interest, but I get paid in full. Under this system, if I force payment in 30 days, I'm, I have to take the onus on that. I have to take a discount on my bill, so I have to reduce my margin. So what I'm saying is that the, I mean, doesn't that it isn't, it's not that it doesn't work, but there is, a, the economic rent has shifted in the system. The, the risk has moved around. Well, I, I understand what you say, but this applies to the situation as it exists today which I don't think you can really compare to as it existed at the time of Adam Smith or as it could exist if the banks uh, are losing their grip on the economy. If the banks do, I'm not, I'm quite sure that people will still eat bread and they will still buy clothes and these will be produced and available but they will be financed completely differently. The, uh, I'd just like to uh, interject something here. The marketplace is really, and uh, professors really sort of help me see it as a sort of a living thing, all right? And unlike the living constitution, that there are <laughs> real dynamics that are in there that we have to deal with. And time and value and money are factors that are everybody's dealing with at the same time. And it's a very interesting question that you brought up in the sense of the discount of, of who bears the risk and payment times and things like that. And um, my sense is, is that what we saw over a period of centuries was a, a, viable, situa a viable system operating. Okay, uh, the, the, the guy who, who grew the wheat knew there was going to be time for the miller to take it, the miller to give it to the baker, the baker to tell it, and the baker to get paid. And so it was sort of a natural thing that went down. Everybody assumed blah, 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 A, B, C, D, E. Um, years ago, I was in the uh, import business, and um, we, I need to have like a million dollar, half million dollar line of credit extended by the banks. Everybody's trying to shove their credit out further. Okay, because more credit, more leverage, more sales, you, or whatever. So everybody's trying to do that. But, but you're forced on the other side by the, by the person who wants to get paid quicker. So it was like this dynamic in the process that took, took place. And my sense is the same thing happened back then. All right, the same thing. Same process, payer, amount of time, the same situation like that. But the, the, and this is what's so radical about what uh, Professor Feckaday has, has put forth in front of us is that we have had a complete transformation of what went before with what we have now. And I have seen this in the sense of money, purely money itself. All right. There used to, you know, one of the things that, that retail stores tell us is that each one of us bears the cost of shoplifting. Okay? I mean, I pay, you pay, or we should be paying for our goods. And that person who goes in there, stuffs that mink coat into their jacket, and takes it out, we pay for it. Why? Because a retail store passes on the cost of pillfish to everybody else. So everybody pays for it. All right? And we all accept it. We understand that to be true. But by the same token, when credit cards have come in, and for <laughs> convenience, knocked off 2.5%, 3% right off the top for doing nothing, 
as they're doing when we go overseas and paying pounds or dollars, taking 3% where they never even did before for the nominal fee to exchange money. That is pilferage also. Legal, they're getting away with it, and all of us are paying for it. So what we've gotten is, is that, and I think this is the, the real critical thing, of, of why the professor will never get this to be sponsored by Citigroup, his seminar, or Wells Fargo. They're just not going to do it. But his, 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 he's giving us hope that, because we all go, well, what, are we gonna do? How, what kind of system are we going to He goes, we've had systems in place for centuries that took care of, maybe not on the volume that we have now, but certainly took care of the same circumstances, over, you know, trading overseas and things like this, that settled things without the pernicious invasion of the system itself that we have with banking. And so we, we've got a system of where we are now, paying here, paying there, paying there. They have interjected themselves, they, they're like the government. They take a cut every long way, mm -hmm. and we do it because there's no alternative. And, and the less alternatives we have, the more to the wall we're pressed. And so what he's laying out in front of us is the memory of a system that worked and functioned without them. And we were all willing to grow up. I mean, I was one of those people that he talked about that just was blindly going along doing it. And now that the system is under strain, it's caught my attention of where the strain has come from. And I think what, what I take for heartening of what, what he's talking to us here today is, is that these, these questions that we may arise of how does this get done or how would this go, it would be different, but it has been done in the past. It functioned, and it functioned more efficiently, and so the gun that we're all under could be removed. And that's a possibility that I find very interesting. <laughs> Can I say a, a word on this also? I understand what you're saying, the 30 days value is not the same as the 90 days value. But the holder of these paper, of these bills, have a choice. They don't have to cash it in a discount. They can hold it in their till and get the full value when it matures, or not. So they have less coercion, whereas with the bank, it's pay on the schedule or else. There's a big difference between a free voluntary system and a coercive system. All right, 30.